Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you and enjoy. So good morning. My name is Kathleen Riddell. This is my husband, Ted. Um, We're really happy to be here today. We're really glad that all of you are here. We live in Wycliffe, um, but we came to 9 o'clock Mass at your parish, which was beautiful. My husband is a psychologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Sees, I don't know, about a bazillion clients a week. Uh, He does marriage therapy, EMDR, does a lot of trauma. Um, He sees children all the way up through adults. Oldest client was in their 90s, and they came to see him because they were just starting to feel old. And he was like, wow, (laughs) hope I get there, right? Um, I'm a registered nurse. And I was a stay-at-home mom for about 18 years. And when I went back to work, I went back as a school nurse in the school that my kids go to. We have five children. They range in age right now from 27 to 17. So today's gospel is on the prodigal son, and I'm not going to go into the whole gospel, but I just sat there and laughed because our younger kids always said that when the older ones came home from college, it was like the prodigal son returned. I bought pizza and pumpkin roll, made homemade cookies, their favorite dinner, everything. And they're like, you don't do that for us. And I would be like, you're always here. And, and it was so much like the prodigal son. It was like, and not the forgiveness part, but just, and I did. And I was like the father watching for them to come. They would come in the driveway and I'm like, they're home, they're home. And the other kids are like, we get off the bus and you just keep doing dishes, right? Like I don't even pay attention. So, um, so I thought it was very fitting uh, with our talk on families that that would have happened today. Turns out to be my favorite uh, gospel reading. So it's really a wonderful thing to, to read that this weekend. And the two, the two parts that always struck me about that, that scripture, that reading, that parable of Jesus, you know, one is, you know, when the prodigal son went off and, and blew everything out of destitute living, it says, and he came to his senses. And that always struck me that do we wake up, do we realize when we've messed up, and, and do we have a plan to reconcile, as Father said, to come back to the Father, to come back to communion? And, and the second is just the, the, the beautiful expression as, you know, he was still away, it's off, and returning home, the, the Father spotted him from the big house, and he was overcome with joy, and he ran down the road to meet him, and not with a look of disgust and consternation and, and how could you, but with joy for his return, with compassion. You know, just that image of him running down the road to meet us is just a beautiful expression of Christ's love for us. The title of the, th- we, you know, I came up with this title. I was saying, where did you come up with that title? That's not the title I want. <laughs> uh, I called it Survival of the Fittest, uh, The Art of Mindful Parenting. Parenting is probably the hardest job you'll ever do. It will test your last nerve. There are times when each of us have just reached the point of complete exhaustion. And it may be also the most powerful, important thing we ever do. Because we are teaching the faith. And these, are, these young people are going to grow up and they're going to be the leaders in our communities, in our world, who bring the gospel of Christ to others. So I often um, quote this. There's a great book I read years ago, Raising Great Kids. And they talked about these goals of the three R's. Okay? At the end of the day, we're trying to accomplish three things with our children. Respect, responsibility, and resourcefulness. So I'm hoping by the end of this talk today, you have a little better idea of how we might engender those things in our kids, you know, so they're able to be 
healthy, happy, successful members of society in the future. So the art of mindful parenting begins with understanding what mindfulness is. And so I'll just say a few words about that. It's something I utilize all the time in my work. In a sense, mindfulness simply means being fully present. I think that's the simplest, easiest definition, being completely and fully present here and now. It incorporates three things. I'm learning how to focus on one thing while staying in the present moment without judging. Okay, when those three things come together, we discover one of our best inner resources as parents. It allows us to access all those great things inside of you, the, the compassion and the patience and the firmness that you need to be effective. But how do we have the wherewithal to do that? But through the practice of mindfulness meditation. So, yeah, I guess an equally good term would be meditation. Of course, meditation means different things to different people, you know. I like when I work with little kids at work and I ask them about meditation and they say, well, I think you got to sit the special way and you got to put your hands up here and you got to go, um. <laughs> and I just laugh because it's so sweet. But us as adults, we realize all that stuff is ancillary. The real heart of meditation is this idea of mindfulness, right? Devoting my full attention to one thing while remaining here in the present moment, reserving judgment, I'm not saying this is a good moment or a bad moment. I'm not saying I like orange juice or I don't like orange juice. I'm not saying this is a good use of my time or a waste of my time. This is my time. This is where God has me. Can I embrace where he has me right now, even with all the imperfections and all the challenges of raising a family in this day and age? As I was mentioning, over time, the practice of mindfulness meditation helps us to do a couple of things that's very valuable. One is to experience things without reacting to them. Okay, This is very helpful in marriage. This is very helpful with uh, kids. All of us have probably been in that situation where you're at the grocery store. So let's say at Giant Eagle or Heinen's, wherever you go. And it's, you know, it's 4.30 in the afternoon, 5 o'clock, and you needed to get some last things to get supper ready, and you're waiting in line, okay? And what's right next to you? What's right beside you, right beside the cart where your child is sitting inside the cart? Candy, gum, sweets, cookies, and they're like, I'm starving, I'm dying, now you have to have one of those. And and we're like, we're going home to have supper, just settle down, you know, and they start to melt down, okay? I need it now, I can't wait, I'm going to die. And, you know, you're like, just, it's okay, shh, just shh, we're going to be fine, you know, and uh, I've got it. They start screaming and melting down, and everybody starts looking at you, and you want to just grab the stick and say, here, eat this, okay, I'll pay for it in a second. (laughs) But at the end of the day, we think, no, no, that's not the message we want, Right? The harder they cry and the more, you know, persistent they are, then we just, you know, kind of give in to their needs. Because we're going to go home and have a nice supper. How do we, you know, tolerate that situation? Be able to stay, stay on track, you know, but with that gift of mindfulness. Another thing that I find with mindfulness that's very powerful is it helps us become more aware. Okay. There's a lot of things we miss. Over the course of the day, we get caught up in our heads, we get caught up with our work, we get caught up with other things. You know, we miss out on some miraculous things that are happening all around us. And one of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius is, is to spend a whole day meditating on God's creativity, how he is a part of everything we see and everything that's going on around us. And I'll have Kathleen share this, but 
sometimes we've kind of introduced that with our hikes because we have a big family and we love to hike with our kids. I mean, have you share that? Cause that was, I like how you handle that. Um, so as Ted was saying, uh, about being available to your children. And I mean, I've had those meltdowns. I was one of those mean moms. They never got the piece of candy. And no meant no the first time. Uh, I have five kids and I took them all to the grocery store and it was, um, it was hard. But once they learned it and we got past that, it was easy, right? And when I said, Riddell children, it's time to go. I never counted. Riddell children, it's time to go. And they just came. And if they didn't, they were punished. So there was immediate behavior. And in the beginning, that was hard to do. As time went on, it it got better. So anyway, let me start by saying, uh, Ted was talking about being available and present, really present with them. I have found it's very, very interesting. Some of you have really little kids. Some of you might have school age, teenagers, and we have college all the way through. I thought when Ted would be playing Candyland with the kids, that was hard and you had to be present. And Yet I found that um, at every stage, I have to remember that I need to be right here. They need me now. And they still need me. My 27-year-old daughter still needs me because she's learning how to be a mom. And she she's doing a wonderful thing. Her and her husband decided that instead of Googling things, the first thing they do is call me and his mom. She raised three. I raised five. They said, you did it. Instead of getting all kinds of other people's information, we're going to go and say, mom, should I go to the pediatrician? What does this mean when he does this? Right. At what point do I panic? On one of the tables, I think it's on the table back there. There's a Jesus book. It's all gold and uh, covered. And our children, when they were in the second grade, had to make a Jesus book before they made their first communion. And uh, for Kelly Marie, the oldest, we went all out, right? We were all excited. We were into this Jesus book. We had every single person that we've ever met write her a letter. Okay, so there was letters in the book. There were pictures of her, everything else. And then there was Teddy. And we went all out for Teddy. And then it came to Mark. And by the time Mark was in second grade, we'd had five, right? And we're like, oh, the Jesus book. Um, but, and we, we dreaded the Jesus book. It was like, oh, no, I got to cover it. I got to go to pack of tans. And because he'd seen the other two kids and you had to live up to that. They all had themes. They were, Kelly Marie was butterflies and Teddy was around the world with Jesus. And I was like, I could barely get the laundry done, right? But in that mindfulness, in that parenting, thank God. We stopped and we made the Jesus book, right? Today, they are treasures. I'm not a scrapbooker, so that's not my thing. But we sat down and we prayed with them and we we talked about what that child was going to do and what his theme was going to be. And now those are precious memories. Ted alluded to um, hiking because we had five kids and I was a stay-at-home mom. We didn't have ample money to do a really expensive thing, so... Just about every Sunday afternoon, we took the kids on hikes in the Metro Parks. My father worked for the Cleveland Metro Parks, so I grew up in the Metro Parks. And I just think that they're, they literally are a gem. So we went hiking all over the place with the kids. And uh, my thing forever was we would get somewhere way out in the woods. And I would tell all five kids to stop. Sometimes like we'd have little ones on our backs. And I'd say, just stop. One minute. No talking. No moving. No asking questions, nothing. One full minute, nobody says a word. And they would stop and they would just listen. And afterwards, we'd ask what they heard or what they saw. And and a minute was a long time for five little kids, right? 
So last night, Ted and I were talking about this talk, and Ted said, you were practicing mindfulness. And I go, no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I just wanted the kids to enjoy nature. And he goes, no, that's mindfulness. You were instilling in them that moment of stop and just peacefulness, right? One other thing, a friend of ours, good friend of ours, when our, our three sons went to St. Ignatius, and we were at a St. Ignatius soccer game out in Bay Village or someplace. I don't know. We traveled all over the place. And he said such a wonderful thing, and I never forgot it. He said, I would rather be sitting at my son's soccer game than be at the seventh game of the World Series. And I thought, wow, because... I love baseball and the World Series, man, if the Indians were in the World Series, right, I want to be there. But isn't it better that I'm at Mary Grace's lacrosse game in Youngstown on Monday night, sitting there freezing cold with hot hands and hot pockets and wrapped in blankets because she's mine, right? And she knows that I'm there. The older ones that are gone, they've all gone away to college. They've gone to big universities out of state and they go away. And they start to figure out what they had, right? Because when they're here, they sort of just take it for granted. Our son, March 19th, is the Feast of St. Joseph. And our son, Michael John, he's the fourth of the five. He was the hardest to raise. He had a temper. He was just very, very difficult, right? At times. <laughs> in our bed for oh, I don't know how long. Uh, he was afraid of the dark. He just really had a lot. But he's a great kid now. He's very stable and good. But on March 19th, on the Feast of St. Joseph, he goes to Boston College, which is Catholic Jesuit University. He sent the most beautiful text to my husband. And he said, Dad, thanks for being such a good father. Thanks for being like St. Joseph. You taught me how to work. You taught me how to pray. And he came home and showed me the text. And I went, that's from Michael John, you know, like, oh, my gosh. But they get it. And they sometimes don't get it when they're growing up. But they go away or they start to mature and they start to reflect on, boy, dad's the one who taught me about St. Joseph. Dad taught me the value of work. So those things the kids do remember. Actually, that was very touching. Yeah, I was really moved that, you know, he thought to do that and. We, uh, I think, have always instilled a love and a study of the saints just because it's special to us. It's something that's really uh, special about the Catholic faith. And they've been wonderful guides in our lives. And every day we would, when we talk about prayer, we'll talk about praying to specific saints. But mindfulness, you know, in addition to that awareness, does, you know, a number of interesting things. One, it, it giving you the courage and the strength to be firm, to be assertive when you need to like in that grocery line or when you are putting them in time out to just patiently, you know, wait out that five minutes or whatever it may be. As I said, it means being fully present. And the example I sometimes use, and I don't know if anybody's ever, ever played the game Candyland. Ever played the game Candyland? Well, Candyland is a mind-numbingly simple game for adults. <laughs> but little kids love it, especially if they're just learning their, you know, just learning their colors, you know. And I would be sitting on the floor with them, and, you know, I'd flip over the card, and it's blue. So I'd go to the first blue square on the candy trail, and I think to myself, okay, as soon as I'm done with this game, I want to go down the basement, see if I have that bucket of paint, because I really should get started on... What? Oh, it's my turn? Okay, fine. Uh, two greens. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, man, I want to check my voicemail, see if that person called back. Do, do you know what I mean? I'm here, but I'm really not here. I think, Ted, be here. This moment is precious. This moment I'll never have again. And so, you know, mindfulness helps me to kind of wake up to, 
can you be here? Because I'm very easily distracted. You know, my mind is off on other things. And, and, and some of that is just human nature. But I'm be, better able, better prepared because of the mindfulness meditation to come back to the moment, to be here fully. I want to talk just briefly about uh, styles of parenting. And Robin, can you pass out that first, uh, that first handout? So it's just a, a very simple handout. I'll just say a couple of words about, you know, as we, we talk a little bit about you know, the structure and the practice of, of effective parenting. And this, this handout um, that a colleague of mine developed um, really, I think, captures it nicely and simply. That there's, they say there's four different styles or four different ways you can approach parenting. And I think it'll be clear from this that the ideal is to be strict, to be firm, and yet maintain that warmth and availability. It's that balance between those three, between those two things that we call the, the authoritative style, or you might call the, the benevolent dictator, okay? So you're in charge, your, parent, your, your children know that you're in charge, and yet at the same time, you're still able to maintain that warmth. It doesn't require yelling, or screaming to get them to do what we want to do, most of the time. <laughs> I'm glad he put that caveat in there. There is some yelling sometimes. <laughs> so then we get into you know situations where you know there may be a behavioral problem. You know where you're struggling to help a son or a daughter with their behavior or something they're going through, and that kind of leads us to to what, what I call the three column technique or three column method. So that's Robin, if you can hand out that second. Uh, second handout. So what this is is simply uh, a way to do some tracking because ideally you want to present a unified front. If you have a good working relationship and you're able to talk ahead of time about, hey, I'm concerned about Joey or Jimmy or Susie and what's going on with them or how they're behaving at school or home, you know, let's, let's develop a plan together. Let's do a little tracking this week. Okay, and that's what I do. I'll give parents this simple assignment. I'll say, I just want you to, you know, you're concerned about your your son, Joseph. I want you to just track three things. Okay, so the first column, I want you to write down things that little Joseph does that you like, that you appreciate, that you value, that we want to see more of. Maybe he's helpful with his little siblings. Maybe he's great at, you know, taking care of his dog or maybe he's this or that. So you write down those things that he does right this is powerful. This is probably the foremost, simplest, best way you can change behavior is catching them doing it right. Okay? It's, it's much easier to find out what they're doing wrong. Right? That's right in front of us. That's what we respond to. That's what we react to. Do we track and, and, and follow what they do right and reinforce that? The second column is for things that they do that are annoying, that are, you know, they may be, you know, like, moaning or complaining or something. Sometimes the best response is no response. Okay? That's that middle column. Uh, those things that I don't want them to get reinforcement or attention for whining, moaning, complaining, those types of things. If we just kind of take a neutral stance, they will extinguish all on their own. The third column of those problems that we agree as a couple, this is a problem. Swearing, kicking, biting, yeah, disrespect, blatant disrespect, or disobedience. Those are things, okay, we need to, to come up with a consequence. And we want it to be a meaningful consequence. 
based on their age and what's going on. And, you know, it doesn't make any sense, you know, if you're arguing with a teenager to say, um, I don't like the way you behave towards your mother and, you know, yeah, you're grounded for Friday night. That's crazy. You can't ground me. That's we don't know what's going on. And we have to. Well, you're talking back. That's it. You're grounded for, you know, four days. Why? This is ridiculous. That's it. You're grounded for two weeks. You're never going to keep up with that for two weeks. I mean, two weeks <laughs> of life. Like, no, don't ground me. Two weeks. Because <laughs> 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 I'm going to enforce it. <laughs> two weeks in the life of a teenager is a life sentence. Okay. Just take away their phone for a day. Right. You're, you're good. Yeah. If you have a life sentence. Why would you care about good behavior, right? So rather, I'd say, stick with, like Kathleen was saying, you know, a consequence, no TV, no cell phone, whatever, for two days, and really stick with it, even if it's difficult, you know, to have a plan that's meaningful for the two of you that you agree to. Um, And sometimes we have to compromise. She might say four days, I might say one day, and we compromise. Or it might be, you know, she suggests this consequence, and I have another one, and we work together to come up with something meaningful so we have a unified front. On that note, when he talks about unified front, it is the most important thing that they didn't put a wedge between the two of us. And you really have to guard yourself against that. It's very easy to fall into a trap because we are extremely different. I don't know about the couples out here today, but we are night and day, literally. Sometimes when you say God has a sense of humor, that he brought Ted and Kathleen together. He has a sense of humor from beginning to the end. But we are in love and we are their parents and we have to. And that's why I said it was survival of the fittest, because sometimes behind closed doors, I would tell him we will survive no matter what they do to us. Right. (laughs) Because I said we are going to stay married. They will not tear us apart because there were times where it was like and he would say something and I'd be like, oh, no, not that. So we are very different. But I knew when he was at work that I had his full support. And I knew when he came home, he wouldn't undermine the authority that I had or the discipline that I had put in. And the kids knew that, too. And I've seen families where that isn't true and no discipline works at all. Because if they know that when dad comes home, he'll be like, oh, my gosh, you're way too strict. He can have his phone. I have lost all authority. I no longer have any control over the kids. Um, Another comment to that, and I hear a lot of parents do this, and I had listened, um, you probably listened to podcasts. My days were before the days of podcasts. Um, I had listened to a talk once about not using the word listen to me. I use the word obey. It's a much stronger word, and our children responded to it. I would say to them, obey me. And they would straighten up because teachers say, listen to this, listen to that. Listen gets thrown around. Busy gets thrown around. There's terms that they hear a lot. But when I would say, you have to obey me, they knew because that almost has, that's biblical, right? They, They could feel that sense that this was important and mommy means this. And when, when I would use that terminology and the other thing that I learned, is when we would be someplace, I never gave them the option. I never said, we're going now, okay? What does that do? That's actually a question giving them the power to say yes or no. So it wasn't okay. I didn't care if it was okay with them. We are going now. We are eating dinner now. Not, we are, dinner, we are eating dinner now, okay? Because now the five-year-old, if they don't come, you've actually set them up for that. Right now you're going to punish them because they didn't come. Well, they said, well, I was playing. You said, 
okay or not, so I didn't come. So also be careful about the terms that you use, the words you use. Uh, they, they are quick to understand how we operate and how we speak. Yeah, and of course, you know, you can give them options. You know, it's one thing if you're getting ready for church, son, you can wear your red shirt or your blue shirt, but you're going to wear a shirt to church, okay? <laughs> this is not up for debate, you know. On a couple more notes, uh, always encourage them to do their best, right? And that's kind of what those charts are about, trying to do their best, having a, a balance, right? Um, with five children, they are all very, very different, uh, they do very well in school, but in different subjects, some excel and others. Uh, one got her Iowa test back and there was literally like black all the way across. And I was like, whoa, whoa, uh, you know, you, you think your kid is doing well and then you see your Iowa's. Well, the next kid's Iowa's were here and the next kid's Iowa's were there. I learned to put those Iowa tests in a drawer. Okay. Now they do map testing and, and some other things. But, um, now that I'm a school nurse, I've put five kids, uh, we have put five kids through Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, and all Catholic universities. That was not our intent when we started this, but our Lord has opened the door for it. And to Ted's credit, I said to him one day, how are we going to pay for this? And his answer was one year at a time. Every year, we just put it in God's hands, and every year we've been able to do it. Pretty but much it, everything I make. Goes to tuition. <laughs> and, and mine. Yeah, and then some. And our kids still have some school loans, but... Um, but no uh, sour grapes, you know, they, worth they love every penny. school. They love school. They all love to learn, and that's precious. And that, that there's a crucifix hanging in their classroom, that means a lot to us, you know, so yeah. it's worth it. I think that that point came home to me when our son Mark was in kindergarten. He's the middle child, the third one, and I was dressing him in the hallway, putting his little pants on, right? The other two, there were two babies around. And he looked up and he said, Mama. And I said, what? He goes, we have one of those in my classroom. And I said, yes, you do. And it was that connection, right? That God is here and there. That school connected to home. And our kids have just thrived in the schools they've been in. But I, I have found in all these years in all these schools, uh, because you're around a lot of other parents, be very careful about grades with your kids. Straight A's is not the most important thing, and neither is smart. I tell my kids, I don't care if you're smart. I care if you're good. How did you treat other students today? Did you do service? Were you respectful to your teacher? When you walked in today, did you say, good morning, Mrs. Wilson? If you get straight A's, but you aren't good, and I've seen some kids who get straight A's, and they are drop-dead nasty, and I didn't want that. I don't care if you're doing your best and it's a C plus, as long as you turned in your homework, you did what you were supposed to do, you were on time, you went to bed when you were told, you got up and you did your best, then at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Getting straight A's was not the most important thing. So be careful about that. And, and our thing was to never pay for grades. But one time, we had a problem in our grade school uh, with our oldest kids. Uh, we just had a rough time with principals and a big turnover and everything else. And so teachers were giving out A's like it was candy. And I was very frustrated. 
I am very type A. I really strive. I push our kids. So does Ted in a, in a different way. Um, but we had high standards for what these five kids were going to do. One of them was because I didn't want people in the neighborhood to say, oh, she has so many kids, she can't take care of them. So bikes were in the garage at night. Windows were washed. Kids were clean. Like I, I went overboard, right? So one time when one of the kids came home with something, I had had a long day, and I screamed at them, and I said, we will aim for superiority, not mediocrity. And they all went, oh, my God. Like, what got into my mother? Well, it has become the joke in our family, right? So they they said, when I die, it's going on my tombstone. We will aim for superiority, not mediocrity. But the truth was, there's something in that, right? I didn't want sloppy. I didn't want A's for sloppy work. Our son forgot to study for a fourth grade test. And he came home and he said, Mama, I failed. And I said, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. We forgot. We were busy last night. That's okay. It's one test. On Friday, he got an A plus when that test was handed back. And that's the day I decided we wouldn't go back to that school. You know why I got an A plus? Because the teacher gave out A's. But he learned a bad lesson. He got 25 points for putting his name in the right place, and he got 25 points for saying that the Articles of Confederation were the Confederation of Articles. Good for him, because he was smart. He thought, well, I'll just rewrite the sentence. She gave him full credit, and he got an A+. And he learned he didn't need to study, that he could be clever and pass a test, Better to know that he didn't study, that he failed, and that he needed to try the next time and write it down in his assignment book. So remember that you are your child's best advocate. You trust your children to the schools that they go to, but never fully give them away. If you think something isn't right, trust your instinct. It's not right. Take your kid out of that situation. Put him in a better situation. Don't don't worry about what everybody else does. You do what's right for your kids. Real quick, along those lines of being strict, I turned the TV off every Sunday night after dinner. It was not allowed back on until Friday after school. No TV. I had five kids, one television. It was never on. In the beginning, it was hard. But I didn't want five kids fighting over it, and there's not much good on television. Our kids played outside. They read books. They did their homework. They ate dinner. They were healthy. I know there's a lot more technology and stuff. I would... Literally, if I was you, I would fight against it. We had Amish nights once a month. We turned off all electricity in the house. Amish nights, okay? Can you imagine? My kids would be playing outside, and they'd say, do you want to come to our house tonight? And they're like, yeah, and they'd go, oh, no, it's Amish night at the Riddell's. We don't want to go. (laughs) So on Amish nights, we would have candlelight. We would take a night hike, and it went for us, too. When they went to bed, TV didn't go on. Read a book, went to bed early, played a game, whatever. Our kids talk about Amish nights, and I bet they do it with their kids. Our middle child, who's the clever one who also got the A on the test for not actually studying the test. On one of our Amish nights, he's sitting there. He goes, he runs in the kitchen. I'm like, what are you doing? He opens up the freezer. He took out every, every half gallon of ice cream. So what are you doing? He said, well, for Amish, this is all going to melt. So they ate all the ice cream there was. He said, we have no electricity. We are delving into the ice cream. So those nights, those nights brought back a different feeling with our kids, right? They kind of dreaded them, but I think they kind of liked them too. I think one of the things that we really valued was instilling a love of reading. 
I recall when Mark was a uh, little, our, our middle son, he was struggling with reading. Okay, he was in second grade and these, these books had, you know, five words on a page and he hated practicing his reading. And it was like pulling teeth to get him to do this. And so, you know, I, we took a different tact and I, I decided, you know what, I'm, honey, I'm just going to start reading to him every night. And so we found this series of books called Redwall, and I started reading these novels to him every night. And it was, you know, snuggle in bed and time to read, and I would do all the characters' voices. And he just loved that time. And after a couple of years of this, he, you know, I was busy with the other kids, and, you know, I couldn't get to him. And he's like, come on, Daddy, I want to read. I want you to read. And he just said, forget this. And he grabbed a book, and he started reading it, and he was just pouring through the books. And he became our most voracious reader. To this day, he's outread both of us. By the time he was in eighth grade, he'd read all the classics. He'd read Dickens. He'd read Shakespeare. He just loved reading. To this day, he is our most voracious reader. And so that time is really precious when you sit down, even when they're little like this, to read those little cardboard, you know, bound books to, to instill that because it's quality time, it's closeness, but it's also engendering a, a love of learning and being lifelong learners, which is something that we, we certainly value. You know, just one last comment about the, the, uh, the three calm technique. If, you know, if you wanted to change a behavior, you know, let's say you wanted your, your son or daughter to make his bed every day for some reason, <clears throat> you know, you could, every time they forgot to make their bed, you could yell at them. You didn't make your bed, you know. That would be what most of us would do. Go up and make your bed before you go to school. Or you could do it different. That's what that first calm was about is you set the standard, you make sure they know how to make the bed, you know, you demonstrate to them. But then you need to say the expectation is to make your bed every day. Maybe the next day they don't do it. And the second day they don't do it, the third day. But maybe the fourth day, for whatever reason, they get up, they, oh, I've got to make my bed, and they do it. That's an opportunity. Make sure you notice, hey, son, I saw you made your bed. Your room looks really nice. I'm really proud of you. If every time, he might not do it the next two days, but the next time he does it, you notice it. You say something. You reinforce that. Behaviors that are reinforced tend to be repeated. If you do that each time, let's say for six or eight weeks, that person, that little man, he will make his bed every day for the rest of his life. Because positive reinforcement is a more effective motivator than punishment. So that's just basic research. So all those things are important. We are going to have to set consequences, and we're going to need to be tough. But that first column is very powerful. One of the, one of the things I like most about mindfulness is how it fosters resilience. Okay, so resilience is our ability to bounce back from adversity, from problems, from difficulties in our life. And they've done some fascinating research that I've, I've, I've always been enamored with in my field on human resilience. What is it about those people that go through tremendous struggles that not just survive, but thrive? And, you know, it's interesting, you know, some, for some of them, they talked about having a charismatic adult in their life, a parent, a teacher, uh, a neighbor, a friend, a, um, a priest at church, someone who, you know, paid attention, who listened, who encouraged and challenged that person, okay? Another quality is that of resilient humans is that they view problems and adversity and setbacks as opportunities to learn and grow versus seeing them as personal failures. One of the things that was really curious about this research is the finding that they would look back and talk about traditions, okay? 
things they did in their families that kind of was a threat of continuity through all the change and through all the difficulties. Yes, mom had a drinking problem and it was really tough, but you know, every, every day at six, we sat down as a family and we had time together and talked about our days or even though, pardon? At dinner. Um, or even though, whatever, some other problem going on in the family, you know, every Sunday we got to church. Every, you know, just this thread of continuity, whether it's religious or cultural or ethnic traditions that bind a family together and foster a sense of resilience over the course of their lives. And so we just thought we'd share a couple of traditions that have been valuable in our family. I want to make the point that traditions don't have to be some big thing. In our family, we had to be really careful about what we did because our kids love traditions. So we would get pizza on a Friday night and they're like, this is a new tradition. And I'm like, no, it's not. You know, they wanted everything to be a tradition. We brought pictures and some other things and they're all on the tables. And some of them are specific because uh, they fit in with our traditions. So the one on that table is a picture of our five kids at the zoo. The, the apparatus that they're climbing on has now been replaced by a new section in the zoo. But we always had a membership to the zoo. And we went all year long. I found that my kids love to go on a snow day. I'd bundle them up and the animals would be out and the rainforest is open. And I packed a lunch I never bought. Um, I packed. So it was like a one tank trip, right? We went to the zoo that day. So little things like that were outings for us that our kids really looked forward to. On that table, there's, I brought it, our son Mark, had, we do secret angels, okay? Instead of secret Santa, we did secret angels. So on St. Nicholas Day, the kids and us, we would pick a name, and you had to put something underneath the person's pillow. I don't know, I think it was like three times a week. Like, I made it something so that everybody, like, did it. And that was Mark's letter to Kelly on Christmas telling her, what the reason was for every single thing he put under her pillow. Like he gave her a yo-yo and he said, that's because even if you go away from God, he always comes back up to you. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. So he like secret angel says this and our kids really love doing secret angels. They really loved if daddy got their name because he went and bought things and that was like against the rules. So they'd be like, dad's got me. They knew it right away because he would go to Walgreens and buy them stuff. We cut down our Christmas tree every single year, took all five kids, cut down a tree out at a Christmas tree farm, and then we'd go on a winter picnic, freezing cold, bitter cold. On Holy Thursday, Holy Thursday service is absolutely beautiful, but very difficult with five children. So um, instead, my husband would read passages from the Bible at our dining room table. We would eat by candlelight. I would buy lamb, unleavened bread, mint jelly kid wine. So they, I would set my finest china and never had company, just our family. It was very special. On Good Friday, we went to services. On Holy Saturday, we always have our food blessed. Everyone would go and we, you know, bring our oranges and the food that was blessed was very, was always out on the table then on Easter Sunday. Birthdays, birthdays were really, really special to me. Um, the day of everybody's child's birth is about you remember those days, right? Some of the days all run together, but you can remember what it was like, what happened, where you were. So I started with Kelly Marie, our oldest on her first birthday, I decorated her high chair and I put balloons on and I hung one streamer. That became a tradition that neither one of our families had every year. 
on every person's birthday, the number of age you are streamers in the walkway into the kitchen, your chair is decorated, a homemade placemat with your name on it and a poster sign with your name on it and every quality that tells about you in that year. Oh my God, what did I get into? It'd be 11 o'clock at night and I'd be like, oh my gosh, Michael John's birthday is tomorrow. Ted, get streamers. We would be cutting streamers and I'd be making a sign and you're a soccer player and you're outgoing and you're wonderful and you're cute and you, you just got braces and you're, holy smokes. We did it every single year for every single kid. And it, it, it was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And they've saved their little posters and it warmed my heart. Our grandson turned one on February 14th. And my daughter sent me a picture of Dominic's high chair with one balloon and a streamer. And I thought, oh my God, that tradition, right? It, I didn't buy them things, but it's what I did. And it meant something to them. Another comment about doing family stuff. We, uh, our kids were in a lot of sports, but the best sport that we were in was swim team. I don't know what your community is like, but we had suburban swim league and all five of our kids swam. Some were competitive, some were slow, um, but they all swam and we found it to be a wonderful time for our family. It was the only time I could have all five kids on one team that we all went together. We spent the whole summer together. We swam at the same pool and my kids went from being on swim team to being the lifeguards for swim team. And, uh, my two youngest are still lifeguarding swim team. So it was really, it has been decades now that we've been involved. I encourage you if it's not swim team, whatever it is, make sure that you are in activities with other good families. It wasn't about the swimming or the winning of the race or getting a ribbon. The families that we met at swim team were like us, maybe not in every way. Maybe they weren't all Catholic, maybe that, but they were like us. Swim team championships were all day Saturday and all day Sunday. And there was a six o'clock mass at Our Lady of Mount Carmel. And on, after champs on Saturday, because that was the only mass we could all get to, we would go in and you'd see all the swim team families and we'd be exhausted. You're out in the heat all day. And we were walking up to Holy Communion. And that was my other comment. We never missed mass. No matter where we were, we were in Lodi Bay, wherever we were, we found a church and we went to mass. So never miss mass. Make sure your kids know that that's more important than swimming or soccer, or baseball, or whatever. But we were walking up to Holy Communion, and my son Teddy, they weren't allowed to wear shorts to Mass, but on that day, they were, because we just had to get there. And he had shorts on, and down the side of his leg, it said, eat my bubbles. And I was like, ah, ah, ah. And I looked at him, and he's like, what are we going to do? You know, eat my bubbles. Great. I thought, oh, the little church ladies are going to have a heart attack. Um, so, but other traditions are vacations, simple vacations, pack lunches, one tank trips, no, elect- no electronics in the car on vacation, car games. Those are the times that we bonded. It was our time with our kids. Uh, we always went to Memorial Day Parade, Blossom on the 4th of July. You know, find those things, whatever it is for your family, but decide these are the three or four things that we're going to do and then do them. I have a niece. My sister is not like me. And my niece was over our house one day and she said, I wish we had traditions. And she was in her 20s. And I thought it's kind of hard to start traditions when they're in their 20s. So start them when they're little. Do a couple things. Stick to it. In the first couple years, it might not seem like much. But as the years go by, it's what builds that tightness in your family. Yeah, I do think it helps 
foster that resilience and helps you to bounce back and get through all the ups and downs of life, having those traditions. Um, you know, I think about uh, teenagers. I don't know if any of you deal with teenagers, but, you know, you think, how will I survive this? You know, I love one of my favorite quotes actually is uh, from Mark Twain, who wrote, when I was 15, I couldn't believe how stupid my parents were. And when I turned 20, I was amazed at how much they learned in five short years. <laughs> and I love that quote because it's such a perspective on, on teens, you know, when they're teenagers that we knew nothing, you know, their friends were the authorities on everything. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of say, be patient with that and continue to parent and continue to challenge and love them through that. And they will come back. And Teddy in college called us, called my wife actually and said, mom, so he's probably 21, 22. said, I want to thank you for never allowing us to have video games in the house. And my wife was like, what? What are you talking about? Ty? Says, one of my, says my friends here in the dorm, they play video games for like four, sometimes five hours a day. And they're wasting their lives. They're wasting their minds. He wasn't good at it. So he like, <laughs> well, Of course not. <laughs> he's like, I'm not good at it. So. Yeah. No, I'm not saying, you, you know, never give them any technology. You know, technology is a wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master. And it can rule their lives. And, and we don't want that. We want more for them. Mm-hmm. Let me just lead in this next session w- w- with a story. Because I do believe one of the most powerful ways we influence our kids is by our own example. And, and speaking of Teddy, when Teddy was about four years old, we had just finished supper. And he asked if, if he could have a treat, you know. And so I had this new package of cookies, you know, these sugar wafers. You have the pink and the chocolate and the vanilla, you know what I'm talking about, those, those wafer cookies. So I opened up this crinkly package and tell him he could have two cookies. Well, he proceeded to take two of each color, okay? So he had, here's this little guy with six of these big cookies. I'm like, hold on, time out, young man. No, no, no. Now, you can have a total of two cookies. I don't care if you mix or match, just two. This little boy stood up in the kitchen. He threw the, the cookies back in the tray and he said, this is bullshit. I was like... Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Wow. He said that so perfectly. And I looked at my wife and I said, hmm, I wonder where you learned that from. And I thought, wow, your kids will keep you accountable, right? He heard me say that. I'm sure in a moment of frustration. And he was just on cue. It was just perfect. And I thought, wow, your kids will keep you accountable. It doesn't make sense for me to say, don't use this language if I'm using it. Or, you know, to be smoking or drinking beer and saying, you never want to do this, you know. Um, they're going to follow our example. So there's many different ways where we can lead by example. You know, one of the best examples, you know, I think of is my dad, for all the strengths and weaknesses, he got up an hour early every day of my life and prayed for our family. He would, I'd come down, didn't matter if I came down at 4.30 or 5, he was on the couch with his Bible open his lap, saying his rosary, praying for all of us. I thought, what a beautiful example. And so I followed his example. Every morning I read scripture. It's a beautiful tradition, you know. And, you know, leading by example, probably the best gift my parents ever gave me was my faith. His father's still alive and still prays for every one of us and all the grandchildren and great-grandchildren every day. His father's 91, um, still living on his own and driving to Mass daily. Uh, and I think that it's one of the reasons why uh, we are who we are as a family. For all of, so there's eight children, all of them still married. There isn't one divorce in the family. I don't think that's coincidence. I think that has a lot to do with grandpa and grandma praying for every single person every single day. We have had our ups and downs as a big family, too, but everybody sticks together. 
as far as reading the Bible, Ted's better at it than me. My mornings were super busy, but the kids see daddy reading the Bible. Our son, Mark, who's graduating from college, uh, has already taken a job and he is going to travel constantly. He's going to be a consultant. So traveling is going to be his life for at least two years. He's not even getting an apartment. He's just going to travel weekly, but just in and out. And so for Christmas, we got him a small travel Bible. Our, our kids saw that daddy did that, and now they're taking it with them. Kelly also traveled. Kelly worked for Epic, and so she did a lot of traveling for them. And uh, she was really cute. She took a little crucifix. And so every hotel room she would go in, she put her little crucifix on her nightstand and her Bible so that it had a feeling of that warmth because hotel rooms are cold and they're void of some of those things that remind us to pray. Um, so she had a little travel crucifix that she took with her as well. You know, I also think about my wife's father, my father-in-law, you know, in, in leading by example, he would take time to do things with me. It was interesting. There's a little park behind their house. So we would play tennis, baseball. And if, even if it was just me, that was around on a Sunday afternoon and I was 18, 19 years old. We forgot to tell you, we dated for six years. We were high school sweethearts. So yeah. we met at 17. Yeah. So he's as close with my dad as his own. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he'd go downstairs and, you know, he would be hitting balls to me or, or shooting hoops or whatever. And it was just a wonderful bond there because he was engaged with me. He was leading by example, teaching me about how to be a father. There's this um, book um, on parenting. I read years ago, Mindful Parenting, and it shared a story, a true story. Um, Mel Lazarus is a, a cartoonist. He did, I don't know, Wizard of Id or Mama, or one of those traditional cartoons. And he was sharing a story about when he was a teenager. He was probably 12, 13 or something like that. And him and three of his friends, true story, went into the school gym and they graffitied the whole place. They snuck into the gym after hours and they spray painted and they just made a mess of the thing, throwing toilet paper all over the place. And they got caught. Okay, the janitor or something walked in on them and took them to the principal's office. Principal called all their parents and they had to sit there. Okay, this is probably 1950 or something. They had to sit there waiting for their dads to come pick them up. In this, Mel Lazarus, his father worked in a factory, you know, 12 hours a day, sweatshop, you know, come home just sweaty, soaking wet with sweat and grimy. And so he's sitting there waiting. He said, oh, I'm so dead. And sure enough, here comes dad number one to pick up one of the kids. And the dad yells at him and hits him and throws him in the car. And, you know, he's like, oh, geez. And the next kid gets picked up. And the next kid and his dad yells at him. He's like, I'm so dead. I'm so dead. This is going to be awful, you know. And he sees, you know, the old pickup truck coming around the bend. And he's the last one. His father comes up, shakes principal hand, has a, a brief conversation with him, comes over, says, son, get in the car. So he gets in the truck. He says, I'm dead. He says, here's what I'm going to get. I'm really going to, he's really going to lay into me. And the father didn't say a thing. He just drove to the hardware store and said, come on in with me. And he bought paint and rollers and wash rags and cleaning detergent. And after working all day, he drove back to the school with his son and they cleaned the whole gym, just the two of them, side by side. And he said, I learned more about parenting in that simple expression my dad did. He never said a word about what I did around. He just said, you need to correct this. And he did it with him. After working all day long, he scrubbed the floors with his son. And I thought, wow, that's a powerful example of mindful parenting, of leading by example. We talked about limiting screen time, no TV. You know, we had to be protective of our family time. We'd have to sometimes sit down with five kids to say, I think we're getting overextended. 
you know, and they may be all good things at school and church and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, sports and things like that. And we'd say, I, I think we're running too many directions. You know, Kathleen or I would realize that, be aware of that, and we would develop a plan. You know, last week we, you know, we went three days, we never sat down as a family for supper. This just isn't right. We need to have that time together to pray, to read, to, to eat together. And so we would have to protect that time. You know, going to Mass. When you go to Mass and your little son or daughter sees you as a father kneeling at church, think about what a powerful example you're setting for them. That I'm not the ultimate authority. I'm the authority of this family, perhaps, but I'm accountable to God. And I have to stop and pause and give thanks. And, and again, how you treat your wife, guess what? This is how your daughter will expect to be treated. Years from now, when she is starting to date or when she grows up. So several of the pictures that are on your tables are in these frames. And one Christmas, um, our son Teddy, I think he was 18 at the time. Our kids always give us a gift and they know that I don't really want to just go to the store because anybody can go and buy me a bottle of perfume. And Ted knows I don't like him to bring home flowers. That's like... That's like a cop out. I'm like, you get me flowers on Valentine's Day, I'll be mad. And he's like, oh, my gosh, you know, you're hard. And I said, I know I want you to be thoughtful and I want you to think of me on a day when the world doesn't say go buy your wife flowers. Right. So I started to open my gifts from the kids. Um, a, a few years they made videos for me, which were just just precious. Um, but this particular year, Teddy and I guess the other kids, but Teddy is the one who printed them out, printed out uh, four pictures of our family on vacations we had gone on that year. And uh, one of them is on that table and it has our five kids. We were in the Smoky Mountains. There were two others. This one is that we stayed at the top of Mount LeConte, which was a six-mile hike up. We did it with all five kids. There's a place that you stay at the top. There is no electricity. Uh, sparse cabins. Um, expensive. So it was our trip that year because you had to pay for each individual. You don't pay, pay for a room. You pay for the person. Um, but we really wanted to do it. And uh, Ted and I got up in the morning and to see the sunrise. And there was a little porch on the side of our cabin. And this is the two of us on the top of Mount LeConte. I didn't know this picture existed until I opened it on Christmas Day. My son had taken it. And it says, the most important thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Oh, I cried like a baby. That's a quote from Theodore Hesburgh. Can you put it back? I thought, oh, my gosh. They see that he loves me and they know I love him on our, we finished our basement about six years ago because we had all these teenagers and we needed somewhere for the friends to go. And I had the hardest time. Ted, Ted did most of the work. Um, so it's all drywall now, but on the cinder block, we built our house 17 years ago on the cinder block in the basement. Mark had wrote in big red, funny letters. Cause he was just a little tyke. Dad loves mom. And loves was spelled L-U-V-S because Mark's a phonetic speller, so it was incorrect. I didn't want him to put the drywall over it. 
because dad loves mom. Boy, do they know that. And if they know that dad loves mom, don't they know that God loves us? He is the image of the father. And they, they feel my love. They see, you know, I hug and I love and I kiss. But to know that he loves me and that I respect him and that we have that sacrificial love, that's what all this comes back to. It doesn't make parenting easy. Raising children was very difficult. But I had five and someone asked me the other day, would you do it again? I said, if I could do it again, I'd have 10 because they are the most joy and blessing that we could have ever asked for in our lives. Probably the most important thing that we taught our children was uh, was prayer. And when we were still dating, we uh, were babysitting one one of my nieces and she said the simple little prayer, Jesus, hold me in your arms. Keep me safe from hurt and harm. Guard my steps and watch my ways so I will not go astray. When I'm lonely and feeling sad, touch my heart and make me glad. Take my loneliness away. Keep me near you day by day. God bless Daddy and Mommy and Kelly and Teddy and Mark and Michael, John and Mary Grace, our grandmas and grandpas, all our aunts, cousins, relatives and friends. We've said it every single night their whole life. We have it for you. We're going to pass it out at the end. Um, And then we would say, and may God bless you from the top of your heads to the tips of your toes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And that's how we ended our night. It was a simple little prayer. We started it, and uh, Larissa is your godchild, and that's who we got it from. Prayer is extremely important to me and to Ted. Ted prays. uh, I have a deep devotion to the Blessed Mother, so I pray to her a lot so that I can be a good mom. But I was also the mother in the neighborhood because I had five kids. Everybody came to our house. Our house was the bus stop. Um, So we prayed at the bus stop. And all the little kids knew that we prayed at the bus stop. So we did a litany of saints. Our kids went to Our Lady of Mount Carmel. So we prayed to Our Lady. We prayed to each of their saints, St. Catherine, St. Theodore, St. Mark, St. Michael, St. John. And the kids would say, pray for us, pray for us. We prayed for the bus driver. We prayed for the teachers. We prayed for the kids at school that day. They learned that there was a connection to the saints. We would pray a family rosary and we would do a living rosary. I would have stations around the house. We'd go up the stairs and the kids would carry the cross. And and sometimes they would laugh and it wasn't always as, you know, religious as I would like it. But we did it. And because there are five decades, uh, every day when I pray the rosary, each decade is for one of my kids. So I do the station, the rosary of that day. But first decade is John Kelly Dominic. Um, Another thing that I want to encourage all of you to do, no matter what age your kids are, even if they're older, um, I started praying for my children, our children's spouses when my kids were little. On our daughter's wedding day, my husband gave the speech and he was able to turn around to our brand new son-in-law, John, and say, we've been praying for you for years. Before we ever met you, we were praying for you because we knew God had you picked out for our daughter. And so we're praying for Mark's spouse and for Michael John's spouse and for Kelly's and for Mary Grace's spouse. Imagine the day when they stand on the altar and we go, that's the person I've been praying for. I've been, I, God has been getting you ready for my son or daughter for years. Go to mass every week. And we talked about that. I encourage you, if you have little kids, sit up front. When you sit in the back, all they see are the backs of everybody. So we sat up front. We brought Cheerios and little, you know, we did all that. Uh, we would sit probably in the second row because to, to the really little kids, 
uh, there's activity. To the older kids, they learn. They learn if they can see it, right? They want, they want this as much as we want it. So let them see what you're there for. Our son, Teddy, uh, is going to start medical school this July, and he took the MCATs a year ago. MCATs is the test you take before medical school. It's an eight-hour-long exam. And on that day, without his knowledge, I had contacted every member of the family, brother and sister, and the two of us, and his fiance. And um, one hour of every one of those eight hours was covered by one person in the family, either going to Eucharistic adoration during that hour, one went to Mass during their hour, prayed to Rosary during that. So from eight in the morning until four in the afternoon, every hour was covered in prayer while he took the MCATs, and he didn't know it till it was over. And when it was over, I said, Kelly prayed from 8 to 9. John prayed from 9 to 10. Grandma and Grandpa did a holy hour from 10 to 11. The power of that didn't matter how he did on the test. The power to know that all these people were praying for him during that time. And now... It's very hard for me that they live out of state. I'm very close with them. Um, so it's like my heart goes away when they leave. Um, but I've gotten in the habit that every time they leave me, usually I'm the one to take them to the airport. Um, I bless their foreheads in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then they leave. They go to Cleveland Hopkins or they get in the car to drive back to Boston. Um, but they leave with the sign of the cross on their foreheads, just like we did when they were little in their beds, right? And, and bless them top of the head to the tips of their toes. And that has given me the greatest sense of peace because I no longer have control over their days or who they're with or what they do. Those days of doing homework with them and going to their soccer games are over. But they go with the sign of the cross on them and God now has them. He has them in their care. I don't worry. I know they're okay because he's taking care of them. That's just beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, as we wrap up, we really urge you to set aside time to pray and meditate every morning, to pray together as a family, to teach your kids the rosary. You may be in the car for half hour, go ahead and say, hey, let's say a rosary together. We've done that so many times, and it's a part of our children's lives. And even, you know, now that they're out of state, they're still doing that on their own. They're all going to Mass. I'll tell you what, that doesn't happen with a lot of families. Kids go to school, go to high school and college, they often lose their faith. Mm-hmm. Little anecdote, they go the way of the dad. That doesn't minimize mom's role at all, but what the sociological data shows if the dad is going to church, the dad is practicing his faith. Even though those kids might get off track a little bit, they come back to the faith. They come back to their, to their Catholic faith, which is a beautiful thing. So second, I think the second most important besides their prayer is what we mentioned earlier. The best thing you'll ever do is to love your spouse. When a child sees that dad loves mom and mom loves dad, it gives them a very deep, powerful sense of security. You know, that carries them through all those ups and downs. And even though this is a parenting talk, make sure you take time for your marriage. Don't, don't let that fall apart while you're just doing kid stuff. We still go on dates. Yeah. It's a, you know, as we wind down, I, we, we were talking this morning, both came to us uh, last night uh, separately, was uh, one of our favorite quotes of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, that I may not be able to do great things, but I can do little things with great love. And that's been kind of a motto. You know, you do a lot of little sacrifices for your kids all the time. But those little things can 
mean a lot, can speak a lot over the course of their lives. So thank you so much for your time and attention. We would love to answer some questions for a little bit. We're in no hurry. We know some of you need to get going. I think we need to uh, get certain people to mass. Yes, they have to go at noon. Okay. Thank you. If you need to go to mass, that's fine. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.